God's eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. As we come this morning, let us take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And there we are going to see a call for passion in action. A call for passion in action. Indeed, we have said that, that the church is God's beautiful bride that is bountifully prepared for the day when he will come and return and he will bring us to live with him for all of eternity. And the lesson we learn from this truth is that if God loves us, if he's passionate, if he's committed to us in this way, we ought to love and have passion and be committed to the church in the same way. For indeed, our love is to be reflective of God's love. Last week we said we really need the local church because it is the primary tool that God has given within this earthly realm to conform us, to shape us, to sanctify us as the gospel is completed and disciples are being made. And this week we are going to challenge ourselves to have lives driven by a passion for the great God that we serve, the the God who has saved us and secured our destiny in order to show fruitfulness in our action. In other words, if God has saved my soul, if he has secured my destiny, if he has changed a sinner from a saint, we ought to be people who are fruitful in showing forth the goodness and the grace of our great God. As we begin this morning, I want to tell you about a man named Robert that lives in Gilbert, Arizona. Robert loves life. He loves people. He loves to laugh and always enjoys people. In fact, Robert prefers not to be called Robert, but he actually prefers to be called Fat Bob. And if you really want to know what Fat Bob is excited about, if you really want to see his blood begin to boil, if you really want to see him become, almost explode with unbridled enthusiasm and exuberance, then you just ask Fat Bob about Jeeps. See, Fat Bob loves Jeeps. He's always wanted a Jeep. And when he thinks about Jeeps, he he just starts to get excited, specifically when he thinks about his own Jeep. In fact, he talks about her as if she wasn't really a thing, but as if she was a person. In fact, he says, she's my baby. I looked for over two years to find a spotless, perfect, beautiful black and yellow Jeep just like I wanted. Now I've got it, and I'm passionate about it. In fact, he recounts, once I got the Jeep, of course, then I had to join the Jeep club. I had to join the Jeep club, the community within our community that that takes care of those who own Jeeps and teaches them all the tricks of the trade. The club had over 1,500 active members. It offered meetings and parties, trail rides, and a website to connect their community so that they could communicate about their beloved passion of Jeeps. Through the club, Robert became engulfed in his Jeep discipleship. He was consumed and devoted to this new experience. In his words, he said, I was totally hooked. Every moment was consumed. I was either working on a Jeep, planning a trail ride, hanging out and talking about Jeeps, or looking up online to see what I could do to improve my Jeep. Fat Bob had become a devoted disciple of Jeeps. In fact, we might say that he was married to his Jeep. I would do anything for the guys in the club, Bob said. 
But I really struggled if I was asked to give something up for the sake of the church. In fact, it came right into a clear view when he was asked by some of the guys at the church to come and to pick up trash there on the campus of the church before a particular event was to be hosted in that local church body. And he blew it off. He says, I just blew it off because you know what? I had to pick up trash on the trail to prepare for a trail ride for the Jeeps. See... We all are passionate about things. We all have things that we are passionate about. We all have things that we are committed to. And the question for us is, we may not have Jeeps that we love that much, but we have other things that we love that much. We have things that we are so committed to. We'll blow off God. We'll blow off the church. We'll blow off other duties and responsibilities so that we might participate in these things. I'll be honest. Let's just start with the pastor. Let's put a big target on him first. I love hunting. And I love to fish. I love college football. I love to be consumed in the fall on Saturday afternoons to sit sit there. And I, I mean, it was just so much fun this year to have my little boy, William, just sitting right there beside daddy, teaching him how to cheer for Georgia Tech as they run over NC State and crush them once again. Steve says, what about basketball? Well, basketball is for those who really don't have a football team. That's where basketball fits in. But that's okay. Here's the the reality. The reality is we all are consumed by something. And it may be hunting or fishing. It may be sports. It might be golf or tennis or basketball or baseball, or maybe running and exercise consumes you. Maybe it's not a hobby that consumes you, but maybe it's your career that consumes you. You set your goal and you said, you know what, if I can attain a certain position, a certain rank, a certain salary, I'll be a success. And you're consumed by everything being pointed to be able to gain that position. Perhaps it's not that, but maybe it's entertainment that consumes you. You can't go a week without missing that show. You know, that one that you, everybody in your life knows that you've got to be set up, ready to see at that particular time on that particular date. Yes, even that. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's video games that's consuming you as a young person. You've given yourself the first day when the video comes out, you play it for 24 hours straight until finally you've overcome all the levels. Maybe you're consumed with relationships. Maybe you've let your dating of that boy or that girl override your motivation to serve and to glorify God in every, every area and aspect of your life. Maybe it's your marriage, your husband or your wife has now come to identify you. That's who you are and what you care most about. Maybe it's your children. Maybe you have given yourself, you have exchanged the worship of the living God in order that you might worship and pour out all of your affection upon the children who God has entrusted to you. Maybe you're passionate about politics. 
and you truly believe that a person, a party, or an, a particular ideology is what is going to change and turn this country around, perhaps one of these things grips you. But understand, understand many things can, we can be passionate about. Many things can consume us. Indeed, it's amazing, isn't it, when you go by the magazine stands and they've got magazines on absolutely everything. I was amazed to find out that they have a magazine on model trains. Who would buy that? Maybe one of you are raising your hand. I I like model trains. Listen, can you imagine being consumed and reading an article about the intrinsic goodness and how great this one rail, one type of rail for a model train is compared to another one? Oh, but hold on. I just spent a ton of time this week reading and researching how great this one particular model of computer was over another one. See, we all give ourselves to something. We're all passionate and committed about things. And I want to just ask you this morning as we start, take a few seconds and just think about what you are passionate about. What or where does your passion translate into action? Because listen, if you're truly passionate about something, I can guarantee you this, whatever you are most passionate about is going to be translated into some sort of action in the course of your life. As you discern what passion looks like in your life, Consider whether your life is consumed with a passion for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your passion is what you give your time to without complaint. Where you find your identity. What you are willing to sacrifice for without complaint. Your passion is what you talk about all the time. What you think about and what you dream about. What you care for, you are concerned with and committed to defines what you are passionate about and ultimately your passion is a direct reflection of your worship. Because whatever sits at the center of your heart, your identity, is exactly what you are consumed with as a person. See, God desires for us to be devoted disciples that are difference makers in our churches and in our communities. He is so passionate about our salvation that he has sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary so that sinners might become saints. And the question for you and I today is if God loves us that much to sacrifice his son on our behalf, do we love him enough to sacrifice our lives on the altar? Of his service. Do you love God enough to sacrifice yourself on the altar of God's service? Let's take our Bibles and look there in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and let's read the, the call for passion in action. Let's stand now as we, as we honor the reading of this God's holy and infallible word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 begins, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Father, we thank you for this word that is your truth. Father, we thank you that it touches our hearts. It reveals to us who we are, where we are, and where what we need to be doing. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and illuminate our study today. Father, that he would lead us and guide us in such a way that we would be changed and transformed. And Father, that we would leave differently than we came in. Lord, may you take this, this truth and write it upon our hearts and apply it in such a way that the world would see that the consuming passion of our lives is the God who has created us, the God who has saved us, the God who is sustaining us each and every moment. Lord, let our lips never cease to praise you for who you are and what you have done. Father, we ask now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. When we see this passage of Scripture, we see that as Christians, we are redeemed by God's mercy and grace to reveal our salvation to the world through our lives of worship. See, as Christians, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we are redeemed by God's mercy and grace. And then we are gifted in such a way to reveal our salvation to the world through our lives of worship. And so we see that there is indeed a direct connection between the Christian's worship and the church and the Christian's church involvement. The Christian is not only to be a member of God's universal church, but he is to be a committed part. She is to be a committed part of God's local church. There's to be a close connection between the individual Christian and their worship and the local body life. As we look this morning, we will see that worship is our greatest display of passion for the God who has created us and who has saved us, who is sustaining us in the action of our lives. And the question that I have for you and and me this morning is the question of what is the passion that drives the action in your life and in my life? What is the passion in your heart and in your mind and your desires that drives your action? What is the passion in my heart, in my life, in my desires that drives my action? 
So first of all, let us this morning look there in verses 1 and 2 and let us see the reason for our passion and action. The reason for our passion and action. And what is the reason? Well, the, understand what I'm saying in this is that we worship God because of who God is. That's, that's just exactly what Paul is going for there in verses 1 and 2. We worship God because of who He is. See, the, we understand the foundational reason for the Christian's passion and the Christian's action is because God has saved our souls and secured our destiny. The mercies of God is the source and the substance of every Christian's worship. And that is to be seen in the action of our lives. See, it's supposed to translate. Not only has God saved us from our sin, not only has He secured us eternally for the destination of His glory, but listen, God has done it in such a way that it's to translate into our lives being different and living differently, talking differently, walking differently than we ever have before. Verse 1 is the building, is building upon the mystery of, ver, of chapter 11 where God's mercy, mercy is revealed in verses 30 through 32 to those who are disobedient. He is redeemed and saved those who were once disobedient and others that His glory, in order that His glory might be seen among them, but also that His glory might go forward among the community, among others who need salvation. The church is nothing more than sinners saved by God's grace that are now instruments of His grace and mercy to others in a watching world. That's what you and I are to be. It's supposed to consume us. We're supposed to be passionate about it. We're supposed to live it out each and every day. Indeed, the right response of redeemed sinners is to give themselves not a piece, not a part, not a portion, but all of themselves. To God. See, the example he draws upon is Christ has already given all of himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. So we now are to worship God by sacrificing ourselves as a living offering to him so that the watching world might see a life that has truly been changed and transformed by God's grace so that we are no longer no longer focused upon ourselves, but we are focused upon our Savior. We are no longer centered on what I want, what I think, the way I want it to be. But now we are centered and focused on the sovereign God that we serve. See, the reasons for the reason for our worship or passion and action is God's mercies, God's goodness and God's grace given us in salvation. We worship God because of who he is and what he has done. When we realize what he has done for us, then we will respond rightly by worshiping and serving him in all of our words and all of our works. Indeed, the motivation of the Christian in service is not serving in order to gain salvation. It's not serving because I have a debt to repay to God. It's serving because God has made me alive and He's given me a new heart, a new life, and a new start. And now I'm ready to go out and to share the gospel with all those who need a Savior. Listen. Boyce in his commentary on Romans tells of a story that Carnegie once told. 
he spoke of a owner of a local plant and the owner of a plant whose name just happened to be Charles Schwab happened to go down to this plant on this day and the, and the first shift manager was there and they were having a little bit of a problem. The plant just wasn't producing exactly what they expected it to. And so Charles Schwab walked in that day and he asked the manager of the first shift, he said, uh, why is the first shift not producing? What's wrong with this shift? And the manager looked at him and he said, Mr. Schwab, I don't know. I've coaxed them. I've cussed them. I've pushed them. I've threatened them with damnation and termination, but nothing works. Schwab said, I tell you what, how many heats has this first shift made uh, this morning? The reply was six. Charles Schwab took a piece of chalk and he knelt down there right at the door where all of the workers come in and out. And he wrote the number six in a huge script right there at the door. As the second shift workers came in, all of them looked at one another and said, what in the world is the six for? Well, the big boss was down here today and he... he asked how many heats that the first shift had made and they had made six by the end of the second shift the next morning they had smudged out that six and they had written back in there seven and when the first shift walked in they looked and they saw the seven and they looked around and said well the night shift thinks they're better than the day shift I I guess we better get active we better get involved we better come together and figure out how to do this thing and how to do it right how to serve God and make it how to how to serve uh, the purposes that we have and make all of the product that we can. By the end of that next morning shift, you know what they had scribbled there on the sidewalk? Ten. In 24 hours, Schwab had increased his shift production by 66% just by throwing down a challenge. Just by showing them where what could be accomplished. Too often the church is guilty of trying to motivate like this manager. We exhort them. We threaten people with hell and use the mighty weapon of guilt to try to get people to live more godly lives. And yet this kind of thinking, this kind of motivation seldom, if ever, is effective. And when it is effective, it only lasts for a few moments. The best way to motivate people is to show them what God has done for them and let them rise to the challenge of responding to that love appropriately. Paul knew and understood that what a person believes about God will determine the way in which they live for God. If you're sitting here today, you need to hear these words. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and to die on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty for your sins so that all those who repent and believe in Him might not be condemned, but might be given everlasting life. That's the God we serve. You want to know the level of your service, the level of worship that would be appropriate? You want to know the reason for your passion and action? Because God has sacrificed His Son for you. You are to sacrifice everything for Him. God sacrificed everything for you. Will you sacrifice your life for Him? 
Secondly, not only do we see the reason for our passion and action, but secondly, we see the risk for our passion and action. The risk for our passion and action is there in verse 3. For though the grace, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought. Basically, don't become proud. Don't become, uh, don't, don't become like the world that thinks they are able to control and shift and change themselves. Listen, what he is saying here is we can, we, should not make it about ourselves instead of God's Savior. It should always be upon our mind. It should always be in our heart. It should always be upon our lips that God has saved us, not we ourselves. Temptation for us is to make ourselves the source and substance of our change. We always have a temptation in our culture to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We always are tempted to give ourselves more credit and to say, well, aren't I a good person? Didn't I do a good work? Haven't I changed and turned things around in my life? In fact, many times the church changes the gospel from God's grace into nothing more than good works. You need to clean yourself up and bring yourself to church. You know, what you need a little bit of religion in your life you know what you need to give up the babes the bottles and the bong and just come on and then come to christ listen that is not the message of the new testament that is not the message of god's word he doesn't tell you that he is interested in sinners who have saved themselves and cleaned themselves up he is interested in sinners who need god's savior He's the one that changes and transforms lives. Not you, not me. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 remind us of where our salvation comes from. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one would boast. See, if it were up to us, we would be tempted to do what? To make it about ourselves and not about our Savior. Church. Don't do that. Christian, don't do that. Don't ever tell someone, aren't you proud of how I've changed my life and turned it around? I've never changed my life. I've never turned it around. God touched me. He saved me. He changed me. He is transforming me. A communist agitator once addressing a crowd in a crowded uh, a crowd in a city square looked and pointed to a drunk man down the street who was in nothing but rags and tatters and he looked and he said listen i tell you what communism can do communism can put a new suit on that man right there to which a christian who was in the crowd responded by saying listen jesus christ can put a new a new man in that new suit see God's not just interested in changing our outward appearance, our outward, uh, our outward appearance before man. He is interested in changing our inner appearance before himself. Today, Jesus can put a new man in your clothes. He can take your anger and he can give you peace. He can take your drunkenness and give you a drink from the fountain that knows no end. He can take your carousing and give you self-control. He can take your hatred and he can give you love. He can take your joyless life. And give you joy unspeakable, but you must be willing to give him everything. You must be willing to surrender to him absolutely everything. Are you willing today to make the greatest exchange that you could ever make of giving all of yourself to God and to God alone? 
Saying, God, you know what? I've tried to be in control. I've tried to fix my life. I've tried to make everything right, but I can't do it. God, I give everything to you. You willing to do that today? Because otherwise you're going to live in that area that is a great risk to every Christian where we would make salvation about us and not about our Savior. The reason for our passion and action is God's salvation, who He is and what He has done. The risk of our, uh, of our passion and action is that we would make it somehow about us and not about God. But fourth, thirdly, we see in verses 4 through 8, the revelation of passion and action is the church. It's you and I. See, there's a direct connection between verses 1 and 2 where we are encouraged as individual Christians to worship God in spirit and in truth, to complete and to prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect what is the will of our father and the direct connection in verses four through eight where we are to serve him in the church we are to show his goodness and grace within the context of his family once again we see in this passage the church god's beautiful bride also pictured as a part of a a bountiful body in the same illusion that he uses there in first corinthians 12 and ephesians chapter 4 where we especially verse 16 where we are to grow up into one body in love Paul shows that every member of the body is unique and necessary for God's great display of his glorious grace his limitless love and his manifold mercy listen God is interested in you He knows who you are, where you are, and exactly how He has gifted you to serve His grace and serve His kingdom. What is being said here is that every true Christian has a part to play in displaying God's redemptive work within their church and within their community. We all have a part to play. We all have a position. And listen, we all have a piece of proving that which is the, which is the will of God in verse 2. We are all in this together. We are one body. And our greatest concern should not be for our needs, but for God's will to be done. See, the parts of the body need to work in harmony with each other. In our human bodies, if our arms decide to work independently of our brain, we've got a problem, don't we? Stop slapping yourself. Oh, I shouldn't have done that probably, but it's not going to look very good. But, uh, you know, if my hand starts to operate on its own and it's not operating under a dependence upon our brain, we've got a problem if the heart decides to just beat whenever it wants to and not when it's supposed to. The body is dysfunctional and something must be done. If the colon decides to become something different and perform something other than its normal function, then there is a problem. When the body doesn't work in harmony, we are said to have a serious catastrophe. To be effective, the body must work in harmony. In the same way, Christians are called to work together in harmony to accomplish the work that God has given to us. To be effective, we have to work the way we have been designed to work. 
Now, we're going to delve deeper into the spiritual gifts at at a later time, but let us just stay focused on this fact that we each are given gifts for the service of God. And these gifts are spiritual gifts that God has given us. These are not just simply natural proclivities that we are born with or acquire on our own. Understand that every human being who has ever been born, we tend to say they have natural gifts, natural talents. But understand this passage of Scripture is saying nothing. Nothing is natural. Everything is God-given. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? Listen, the source of your salvation is God and God alone. The source of your spiritual gifts is God and God alone. And the truth is all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our experiences flow from the hand of our sovereign God. In verse 4, not everyone is called or equipped to do the same thing, are they? There are different gifts, services, service and working, but the same spirit who gives all the gifts. Every spiritual gift comes from the same source. You may not be able to do exactly what somebody else may be able to do, but understand that is by divine design. God has created us to have different pieces, different parts, different portions of the puzzle so that when it's apart, we can't exactly figure out how it fits together. But when we come together God beautifully shapes us into one whole picture. That's what God is doing. He has given us different gifts. And different doesn't mean inferior. It doesn't mean better or worse. Different simply means, and get this, make sure to write it down. Different means different. It's not the value of the gift. It's the 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 piece, the part, the portion that God gives. First Corinthians chapter eleven and twelve, verse eleven, Paul says, All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives to each one just as he determines. See, the different gifts are dis- distributed as God determines. My calling to preach doesn't make me more holy or more spiritual than you. It just makes me different. I have a different part to play. It doesn't mean I'm more valuable because listen, I'm not any more valuable. God's word says each of us are gifted differently by divine design. And it is his sovereign will that gives us our gifts and allows us to work them out. Our gifts indeed are manifestation of the Holy Spirit, not a manifestation of our spirituality. You ever thought about that? The fact that God gave you a gift, a place to serve, a place to show the world His goodness and grace in your redemption is a sign, a manifestation of His Holy Spirit, not of your spirituality. So don't become puffed up or prideful lest you fall. See, the gifts of the Spirit are given by God for the purpose of enriching the body of Christ. In other words, the abilities God gives us are given not primarily for our personal enrichment, but for the enrichment of the body of Christ. There are two practical implications of this, of this understanding. First of all, we are to be humble about all of our gifts. We are never to think they are from us or to us or for us. They are from God, to God, and for God. But secondly, we're not to call, we're not called to give rank to the gifts. 
We are called to exercise the gifts. We are not called to rank the gifts. We are called to exercise the gifts. We are just to understand that's a piece, that's a part, that's a portion of the puzzle that is fitting together to reveal the beautiful picture that God is revealing to all of His creation of His redemption of sinners and making them saints. Here's the reality. We look at our bodies and we don't even think about things that are necessary for our bodies to function, do we? See, you and I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about our tear ducts, do we? Well, they're just a little passage by which moisture flows to our eyes to keep them lubricated and keep them functioning. Make sure that they're protected. You and I may not be very concerned about our tear ducts because they seem insignificant, but you and I are very concerned about our eyes, aren't we? Because if our eyes become disabled, the light that lights most of our life would be hindered. And we would no longer be able to function in the same way. But listen, and let me explain it to you this way. The tear duct in your eyes seems of little importance unless it isn't working and your eyes have no moisture. And then it becomes glaringly significant. Overwhelmingly significant. Because if that little tear duct wasn't conducting the moisture necessary for your eyes, then you would have a problem in your sight. Whatever area of giftedness God has given you within the church, in your spiritual life, we are to remember that we are serving the Lord and each other. A husband who is tending to his wife, who is in labor, is eager to do whatever his wife wants, isn't he? Hold my hand. Okay. Go get me some ice chips. Okay. Get out of the room. Okay. <laughs> you do whatever you whatever your wife wants. Why? Because you want the best for her and you want to care for her and minister to her in those moments. Listen, I've never heard a husband, at least a husband with any common sense at all, tell his wife, why don't you give me more something more significant or important to do? As Christians, would we ever say to our God who has saved us, our God who has given us spiritual gifts, why don't you give me something more significant or important to do? Play the part God has given you to play. Be the peace God has given you to be. Understand, He is putting all things together in such a way that that His body might show and reveal His goodness and His grace to the world. This is the way that we should approach the body of Christ out of love and gratitude. We should be willing to do whatever God has given us to do. And if that means stand up and preach, stand up and preach. If that means go around and pick up the trash, pick up the trash. But listen, setting up and tearing down the event are just as important as the event itself. The question is, are we willing to serve? Are we willing to give ourselves up for God's kingdom? There's no pursuit more satisfying, energizing, and fulfilling than to joyfully do exactly what God has called us to do in exactly the place He has called us to do it. Listen, if you're struggling this morning saying, well, I don't know what my spiritual gifts is. Uh, uh, I'm from South Georgia. You can uh, forgive me for the diction uh, or the grammar. Uh, Understand. 
If you're struggling and you're saying, well, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. How can I find them out? Well, look in Ephesians chapter 4. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look here in Romans chapter 12 and see the gifts that God has given for his spiritual service. And then you ask yourself these three questions. First of all, what am I gifted in? What am I good at? What am I gifted for? Secondly, How could I use that for God's kingdom? Where would God have me use that in His kingdom? Thirdly, do I trust God to take a step of faith and serve? Am I willing to step out and to do something that I wouldn't be comfortable with normally because I know God's goodness and grace has given me that spiritual gift, called me and equipped me to do it, and now I'm going to fulfill the task He has given See, Paul unfurls a beautiful tapestry here in Romans chapter 12, a tapestry that has been stretched across time and eternity as God is rolling out his redeemed sons and daughters and and showing that he has woven us together in an unceasing fabric by which he is showing his glory and his grace. He have you seen that truly masterful tapestry? I can't help but think of those tapestries at First Citizens Bank corporate headquarters when I was working there and here on the wall were absolute masterpiece tapestries tens of thousands of dollars of tapestries and it was absolutely amazing to look at that picture you immediately when you looked at that tapestry otherwise known to those of us in Georgia as a rug when you looked at that tapestry hanging on that wall you were convinced that that masterful technician had gone in and spent hours designing Possibly even years collecting the resources. And maybe even decades weaving together that 